Welcome to the Learning Hook Podcast. Join our team as they explore topics across learning and development, e-learning, media production, and all those creative learning spaces in between. For us, it's the just in time, just enough, and just for you. So let's learn, connect, perform, and do something great. Welcome. Today we're catching up with Mark Nemus. If you haven't met Mark before, you might have seen him actually presenting at many e-learning and health industry events in particular. Mark has a long and really rich history in e-learning, digital solutions and all things learning and development and training, but with a particular focus on health. He's the founder and executive producer of HealthXN, a really innovative company which is aiming to empower health organisations for our digital world. I think in real terms, though, that's about people just getting to what they need really fast, right, Mark? Yep. So welcome, Mark. Thank you, Brendan. It's uh, uh, for the opportunity to speak to yourself and your listeners. Today, we wanted to just to have a look a bit at your journey. I know you personally. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's worth sharing that, you know, up front. We'll, we'll look at your history through e-learning and your focus on health in particular, I think, and how you got there and, and particularly with an Australian focus and trends. So do you mind sharing a bit about your history and, and where did, I guess, it all begin for you in e-learning and what got you to HealthXN? Cool. My kids always ask, well, what is it you do, Daddy? And uh, we sort of You've got an answer for that. We got an answer for that. We said, look, like most people's careers, it's riddled with sort of chops and changes and sliding doors. But the long and short of our passion at the moment is effectively people, learning and technology, ostensibly in that order. And what's sort of happened was uh, at uni discovered business and marketing, then had the opportunity my, uh, to study on a graduate program, which then taught me the value of actually learning and experiencing like most people do. Mm-hmm. Very, very quickly, we actually set up an internet service provider company uh, across from the Dairy Bell. 80% of our customers were students from uh, Donville Christian College. And we actually went out to the school and it turned out what they were doing was during the day, they were doing all of their assignments and their work. And at night, they were using our internet dial-up speeds of 56K to actually VPN into the school and access the learning that they were doing throughout the day. So they were (laughs) creating like Word docs and PowerPoints, and they didn't have the right programs, and they didn't use USB flash drives at that stage, but they were happy to VPN in. And we said, so really the value for what these kids were doing was not necessarily the connectivity, but the connectivity back to the work that they were doing during the day. So that then, what year was this? This was late, sort of mid nineties. At that stage, the average school had a sixty-four k wow. ISDN, and the internet download was maybe a couple of gig for the whole school for the month. Mm. And I guess we probably do that in a couple of hours now. And it taught us the value of actually that the content they're accessing needs to be in a structured way. And so we basically set up a very large internet VPN company connecting students back with their schools. Mm. And that was quite successful. We raised a lot of, we survived the dot-com crash, which happened around then. Mm. We set up lots of infrastructure. But again, it always came back to the value of learning, that if the content that they're working on or if the Mm. thing they're interacting with wasn't important to them, then they're not really going to pay to have access to that. Mm. That espoused the value of you need a technical infrastructure to be connected But then you also need, once that level's done, it's a bit like your TV. If once you have reception, you forget about the fact you have reception. Now, what channels am I going to watch? So at that stage, it was an infrastructure play, making sure you had the right infrastructure. And then seven years ago, 
I had the honor of meeting a gentleman by the name of Professor Stephen Boyages, who is the CEO of Western District Health in Sydney. Western Sydney is one of the fastest growing areas in Australia. Mm. And in that meeting, he espoused that since Archimedes' time, not much has changed in the way we triage a patient. Mm. So although you actually have maybe your ambulance is approaching the hospital and maybe you tell them what's on the ambulance, but what we actually do once the ambulance arrives doesn't really change that much when they come in. So from a learning perspective, how do we actually now begin to espouse just-in-time learning? We, we know kind of what's coming through the door, but we may not be overly versed in what's happening there. There may be sort of drug or occupational violence issues, all that sort of stuff. So we don't really know. But how do we make sure that those, those staff are empowered? So I'm, I'm pleased to say from a health XN perspective, Stevens are sort of our founding chairman and basically espouses the value of effectively learning in the health and care sectors. So now over the last five to seven years, we're pretty focused on enabling every health and care professional who does not have a PC or a device as part of their day job to have access to the learning they need to do their job within three seconds or three Mm. clicks or less. So that's our absolute passion now is that sector isn't in a bank, isn't sitting in front of a terminal, it's highly mobile, often running around and things happen ridiculously quickly. How do they get what they need to know almost immediately within three seconds or three clicks? Yeah, at that, that point too, I think, Mark, um, I know I've seen with, within health, um, I, I don't have that, that level of insight that you do specialising so much in health, but I, I know I've seen in health it's um, not a similar job to, say, mining um, or, or maybe not a similar job even to retail. Yep. But those, they're big industries that um, haven't traditionally had a lot of people sitting in front of computers or any yep. access to computers. They're right. very kind of hands-on roles or working with people roles. Yeah, enabling the three clicks within three seconds is massive. Yeah, And from a health perspective, yeah. we also have a massive gamut of education levels. So mm. there's absolute pockets of technical brilliance in a da Vinci robot performing a procedure mm. in a clinical setting, absolutely highly educated, over the top, ridiculous amount of professional development, ridiculous amount of access to technology mm. and infrastructure. Mm. But then you get the personal care assistant in a care home that's done a six-week course, English as a second or third language, dealing with a, a ratio of one to 10 or 20 or 30 people and no device to be seen at all. So yeah, well. for us, we believe we're really about empowering the frontline worker. And if you look in a hospital setting, something like 60% of their cost base, recurring cost base, is staffing. 90% of a care home is basically personal care assistants or technically underqualified or non-professionally educated labor. As similar with retail, mm. your experience is often born out of a frontline interaction, not just the back end. So what we're really passionate about is enabling a, a technically under-resourced or an under-educated workforce to basically have access to the materials the way they want to have access to it. And the great news is when we started this stuff, everything was built for the PC first, Mm. where everything was built for a CD-ROM slash PC. The second screen was the mobile. Now the first screen is the mobile and the second screen is the laptop or the desktop. Coming back to your point, there's probably five key, what we call revolutions or evolutions as a sector mm. that are that are happening and they dovetail incredibly well into the learning side. And most people assume is already there, but it's actually quite scary when you scratch the surface. That's, That's what really I was interested in. So yeah. the current yeah, that current landscape. So I'd like to know the top five and because I think too from our point of view, you know, the, these sort of insights into health, when I talked about mining and retail before, there's lots of crossover. 
Yep. So it's that scratching the surface bit. Yep. So what is the current sort of landscape? I know you travel a lot too and, and have a global perspective, but probably particularly in Australia. Yep. Uh, yeah, our, our current sort of state and those top five. Yep. I'll go into detail on each one slightly, but effectively it's interoperability, workflow, knowledge transfer, personalised medicine, big data, and we actually call it five plus one, right? Because it's actually the plus one is, is in some cases the most important one, which is effectively leadership and mentorship. So if we go into those areas, so, so interoperability, it wasn't too long ago in the banks that you used to have to change networks before you did things. Where you, If you wanted money out of an ATM, you could only go to your bank's ATM and that, yeah. that sort of thing. Come on, let's change that recently. That's right. That's right. So from a, from a healthcare perspective, the interoperability of your personal record is becoming almost paramount. So at the moment, if you go and see a radiologist and you get some scans and then they send it to your GP, but then if you go to a different GP, that record is sitting in a paper file somewhere on a mm. filing cabinet that may or may not be accessed by others. So the things that happened in banking over five or 10 years ago is now starting to happen to, uh, from a healthcare perspective. So that's good and that's bad because the interoperability means that you should own your record, you should own what it is you do, both in a medical sense and a learning sense. And we can go in a little bit and talk about blockchain and those sort of things. So number one is interoperability of, of data and systems. Number two, effectively, is workflow. I don't know if you can see when you go into a hospital sometimes or into a health provider, mm-hmm. you really want the confidence that the workflow you're going through actually is it is actually there to suit you. So in many cases, it's a little bit like, and Professor Boyage, as a chairman, says, can you imagine going into a restaurant and they just basically give you dessert and then basically give you the bill and you just walk out and you say, hold on, I just came in, I haven't even ordered anything yet. And then the next time you walk in, they give you a menu and then they, they usher you out the door and you pay, yet you haven't ordered anything. So it literally is the standardization of work practices. Clinical is very well defined. What you need to do clinically when you see this is very, very well defined. But often the workflows between the clinicians is where the, the problems tends to be. Is, does this relate to the revolution at all, or revolution? Maybe it is perhaps, but uh, of person-centeredness, Mark? Because we, we've done a bit of work with Vision Australia around yep. that space, and yep. they've, they've completely embraced it. And um, so Yeah, they, it's just interesting. The example you said of a waiter, we, we wrote that into a little learning hook with a, a waiter taking an order up front and right. um, dictating the order. That's right. As opposed to really thinking. Correct. You know, so, yeah. so you'll see uh, in the health perspective, especially in aged care oh. and community care, you'll see this thing called CDC or consumer-directed care, where the funding model now follows the individual, not the institution. Yes, that's also driven through the NDIS is similar. And, Correct. Yeah, it's yeah, all, really, and that's, that's a huge change. Mm. So it used to be that you had 500 beds or you were servicing 500 people and the relevant department would pay you for those 500 services or 500 incidences of service. Now the individual person receiving that service has the right to basically dictate where they get that service from. So the challenge for care and delivery organizations is the person who's getting the service can literally up and go and take that funding with them wherever they go, right? So that's a completely different paradigm. Very different. Very a lot of tension. And the way a, a health clinician is trained is generally clinical practice, absolutely top shelf, bedside manner, maybe a little bit different, or keeping people in the loop may also be a little bit different. Hence workflow. Hence workflow. So to define that Mm. workflow, to have a Mm. good workflow. Now, if you're in for a procedure that you're not happy about, you need to have a very good workflow around managing that. You may not be happy having that procedure, but you want to know that the person having that process through Mm -hmm. is actually competent, certified, capable, very similar to the mining industry, basically has the ticket to work ostensibly through you in that space. So it is a change. So from a workflow perspective, 
Not dissimilar to building a house. If you've ever built a house, the problem tends not to be the individual trades. It's the time between the trades. It's exactly the same in a hospital. Where you sit there, you go, oh, we have to wait three hours for our scan or whatever it is. So number one was interoperability. Number two was workflow. And number three, effectively, is knowledge transfer. If you look at the way the uh, health practitioner is generally trained uh, from a doctor perspective, how long it takes them to become a specialist, et cetera, from the grounding, uh, the grounding is all very, very well defined. Absolutely fantastic, great level of care. But the problem is, do we have the time to do that? If it takes 15 years to get someone to be a specialist up to this level of competence, what can we do to basically reduce that time, increase their exposure to relevant cases? And then, so that's at the super educated end. At the other end, mm. if someone's literally done a six-week course and is now a personal care assistant and is crushing up a tablet with some jam to give it to you, right, and they think they're doing the right thing, but clinically it's not the right thing because that particular tablet had a coating on it that allowed it to pass through the stomach. Mm. So all of those sort of things, how do you make a technically under-educated workforce at the same time uh, handle that? So the knowledge transfer. Professor Boyash, our chairman, basically says measure what you can measure, but if you can't transfer the knowledge, there's no point. So you can measure bed waiting, ambulance ramping times, all that sort of stuff, but mm. if you can't help transfer the knowledge of how to improve that service, there really is no point in measuring it in the first place. So interoperability, workflow, knowledge transfer. And the big thing that you've talked a little bit about is personalized medicine. Mm. So if I have my data about the types of things I know, if I have my own genetic testing, if I have my level of activity with my Fitbit, can I now begin to have personalized genetic medicine according to my conditions and my, in, in my cell type? So at its most basic level, it's if I'm active based on my genotype, based on my genetic type, these are the things I can be predisposed to. So those sort of things where big data and personalized medicine begin to come together are incredibly interesting. And there was even an announcement yesterday that 75 universities have got together and mapped out another 200 odd genotypes and pre-existing conditions. Doesn't mean you will get that condition. It just means you need to be aware that you're highly, have a high incidence of getting those sort of conditions. So that personalized medicine, and big data are becoming incredibly paramount in medicine. So again, interoperability, workflow, knowledge transfer, personalized medicine, predictive big data that we alluded to earlier. And what I find which is the most important is effectively the mindset and leadership and mentorship within healthcare. There is no other country I can actually think of as a system where you'd actually probably prefer to get sick. If you think about that when you've traveled, you've gone, oh, you know, and, and you see it all the time in the mm. news. If you get sick, you tend to want to fly back to your homeland because you know, ostensibly, as social-based medicine, you will be taken care of. If you fall on the mm. side of the road, you will be taken care of in the best possible medical care that's available to you. So individuals are doing absolutely phenomenal work because... People who work in health and care are generally not there for the money. They're there because they mm. care. How do you harness that and leverage that? And, and the best analogy I have for you, Brendan, and I'll mm. uh, sort of move from there, is the best analogy is healthcare, generally speaking, is, is a bit like an Encyclopedia Britannica. A committee somewhere has decided that this mm. is the knowledge, this is how you need to do it in a world that's moving towards Wikipedia, where the group has said, the collective has said, this, 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 and this. They absolutely both have their place. And if I'm having a medical procedure, to be frank, I think I probably want a Britannica doctor, right? Because the old guard, yeah. 
but you have to be open to the fact that the group collective is showing newer things and newer ways of doing things in the Wikipedia model. And Wikipedia tends to be more accurate, but I'm going to use bad English, wrong or quicker. So if it is wrong, it's fixed quicker. But I don't want to be the one who's mm. having a procedure done with the wrong information <laughs> and that snippet in time. No. So you need to have both of those two things. So from a learning perspective, certainly as an industry, it's access to technology at the top end is absolutely on top of things, but at the actual cold face, technology is only just becoming a part of what they actually do to mm. deliver a service. How do you effectively teach and motivate a group of individuals that are completely ridiculously qualified and have lots of continuing professional development, lots of ongoing education, and then a workforce that's customer facing, uh, that's technically undertrained and does not have as much exposure to basically learning. That's the that's totally we do personal care learning. assistance, a, a, a great example, I think. I thought it was interesting too, Mark, to talk about motivation. It is a, it's probably a really motivated audience, yet I know, well, I think the challenge there would be the just-in-time learning stuff can feel peripheral to them because they're motivated to do their job yep. and make an impact and for patients. Yep. Um, that's the number one thing. So that sort of solution has to be an absolute enabler and seem to be that not is wasted time, I but, guess. You yeah, know, as, and let's yeah. be frank, if you're using a care as an example in the, say, the aged care sector, so personal care assistance, there's about 300,000 of them actually on the payroll in Australia. So mm. overall, health practitioners are about 10% of the country's GDP spend is in health and care. So 10% mm. of what the government hands out is in the health space. It also employs between 10 and 15% of the total working adult population mm. in Australia is employed in the health and care sector. Now, if you look at, say, personal care assistance, or you look at people employed in aged care, as an example, aged care demographics, there's about 300,000 people who worked in the aged care sector. You have about 10% of that population mm. is are registered nurses, so you have qualified, extra qualified nurses that are specialists in aged care. But the unpaid care workforce, so the people actually providing care in mm. an unpaid capacity is about 1.2 million. So, wow. And they don't want a qualification because they're providing care to their families, their daughters, their sons, That's their right. parents. They're not even a workforce. They're basically doing this as, as a carer mm. themselves. So how do we enable access to those organizations and those people? So they don't need the... That's the reality of where they actually go. In that Wikipedia example, mm. we think that you should go maybe to a trusted resource in that space. And how are you a trusted resource in that space? It literally is the consequences of this industry of getting it wrong. Having done a lot of work, and like yourself and e-learning, mm. it, it tended to be banking, finance, telco. They were easy because they had a big compliance stick. And still mm. 80% of the market is, is compliance. Even in health and care, it's compliance. But the people who work in the industry, they're hired because they have the right temperament and the right type of value system, and then they learn the rest of the stuff effectively on the job. Well, so you, you, they're not there for the money. Having said that, as a personal care assistant, it might be their first job, and they may go, mm, you know, two or three years in, they go, oh, I do want to raise my qualification. So you then start to get specialities around that. So we believe that aging population, absolute need for this. They're, the people to do this work do not exist. They're not here. They will not be here unless mm. you're basically going to have an immigration rate that's three to five times higher than it currently is. The people to do this are not there. So we need to leverage the available technologies that are there. 
and we need to basically educate those that are in there as much as humanly possible to help deliver on this because it's all ahead of us, Brendan. You know, we either have our families <laughs> in the situation. It's, it's so, in our, all our best interests, I think, to yeah. yeah have a highly capable, personal-centered uh, workforce, mm-hmm. right, at every level. And training really and learning and, and that performance support stuff is just um, – well, it's all we, – we're capable of that now too through, yep. through technology. Talking technology too, you know, going back to the interoperability yep. um, point that you were making, you mentioned blockchain, Mark. Blockchain's a, a really interesting technology. Some of our listeners might have just heard it referenced to. Some of our listeners might know a bit about it. Other people haven't heard about it. Blockchain and Bitcoin are probably one of those things the majority of people, if you have heard about it yet, you kind of really don't understand it. <laughs> um, I speak from my own personal experience and, and people that I talk to. What is blockchain, Mark, and, and how's it being used in um, within health, I guess, or, or training in general? I spend some time in the Blockchain Centre down here in Melbourne, which is in South Melbourne, and it, and it literally is a room full of people tapping away and doing stuff like Bitcoin mining and all that sort of stuff. Blockchain. It means they're getting rich. That's right, that's Current, right. Yeah, that's right. While the market's where it is today. I speak purely not as a blockchain expert, but for us, a blockchain technology is, is literally just a distributed ledger. When you perform a transaction, there is a public ledger of that transaction and no one actually individually owns that ledger. It's distributed. Mm. So if I give you something, the ledger of me having given you that is effectively distributed. Mm. The best analogy I've heard so far is if you look at blockchain as a technology, it's just a database technology that's highly interoperable and it's not owned by any central resource. Mm. When banks transact, we have an agreement. We trust our bank. They trust their bank and they talk to each other and then they basically do a transfer over a database. Here, that database isn't controlled by any individual entity. It's actually effectively public and it's distributed. So if a transaction happens, that ledger technically or copies of that ledger exists everywhere. So it can't be falsified. Yeah, that was something that struck me was that you can't change the history of Correct. blockchain. That's right. Once it's sort of out there, it's out there. It's out there. So, so how do you see that? So talking about the ledger and, and, and these sorts of transactions, how does that work from a training point of view? So, so in a perfect world, maybe, like what, what's that transaction and how does it help? Very similar to talking about teenage sex. There's a lot of people talking about it, but they're not really actually doing that, right? <laughs> um, if you look at the simple analogy from a learning perspective on blockchain is in the care sector and health and care sector, they tend to be looking at records management, the actual medical record, a blockchain around your medical record. We're interested from a training perspective in a distributed ledger for a training record of completion that's owned by the individual. So I, as Mark, you as Brendan, should Mm. own our training record wherever we go, whatever we do for whatever organizations we do it for, and we authorize whoever can see the bits of our training record that we actually want both formally and informally. So if Brendan has done a formal grad dip in education and has been given that certificate by that organization, that little bit of the chain becomes yours that you own and you're certified that you've done that little bit by that institution. But then Brendan owns that little bit of the chain. And then if Brendan goes and reads an article about best practice learning and development from the Maisie Center and decides that that should be part of your individual record. If you want to add that to your chain, you should because it builds a profile of you of your formal and informal. And that's where it becomes incredibly powerful. From a learning perspective, Brendan is in control of the record, formally and informally. So if you have a formal qualification issued to you by a major learning institution as part of your blockchain, Brendan owns a copy of that. Like that certificate that you've got in your little folio at the moment, We do not need to go back to the referring institution to say that that's that's been issued. 
you have that. And you've probably heard stories about people with, that had some Bitcoin, which is a type of block, and it was on a hard drive, and they threw the hard drive away. Now that basically the hard drive's thrown away, it's gone. It's like throwing cash away. You've actually thrown your token away. Mm. It doesn't exist anymore. It's gone. You've thrown it away. It's just throwing cash away. If you look at blockchain, blockchain is the theory of payments, mm-hmm. whereas Bitcoin is the US dollar. So from a learning record, we're really bullish on the actual technology that underpins this, that you have an individual learning record that is owned by Brendan, that you can add various bits of transactions to, and it's portable, and you allow who sees and doesn't seize that level of competence. It becomes really interesting because you and I both know when you're doing compliance type training, and you were talking about mining earlier, or in healthcare, if I go and work for one health institution and I do all my compliance training, and then I have a lot of our workers have three jobs because it's a massive casualized workforce, I then have to do all that compliance type training again for the other institution. So why? Because that other institution wants to cover their ass, right? For no other reason than than that. Whereas you as a learner go, hold on, I've done five emergency and evacuation courses because I work for five different institutions. Now, the basis of emergency and evacuation is exactly the same. Why do I need to go to do the same course across five different divisions and be paid for it as an organization when all I really need to know is that this building is different than that building? So that's where a blockchain makes a hell of a lot of sense because then once you have that record, it is yours, it is a certificate of attainment, and you basically control that moving forward. You'll hear a lot of blockchain conversation around financial transactions, ICOs, initial coin offerings. So all of that, we don't really get involved in. We love the underpinning block technology, but we don't necessarily play in the individual currencies, if that makes sense. None of the CIOs we talk to care necessarily about blockchain. They just wanna know, that the staff we've got today are compliant, legal, and capable, and are not going to do any harm, and that they have everything they need to do their jobs. If you use blockchain, if you use tin can... and I was going to mention tin can because it's um, everything you've talked about blockchain, I guess I've been putting these links together. I'm much more familiar with, I guess, tin can, or, or people know it as XAPI or Experience API, and the learning record store. So when you're talking about learner records before, you know, the, the next step is the learning record store, which is used with uh, Tin Can and has the same capability from a technology point of view. Yep. But I guess it's still about, um, you know, you can have a, a more of a global record store yep. through Tin Can where people could move from job to job yep. and save their badges, yep. their micro courses, their Correct. micro learning, the MOOC they did, um, and their Bachelor and Masters of Education. It's all in one place. The concept of that's amazing. I guess as a future state, it makes so much sense. When you talked about too, Mark, I was was sort of thinking about this from an Australian point of view and for the general public. If 10% of our GDP is spent on health Mm. in that space, it is in everybody's best interest to get people up to speed to competence is massive. And these sorts of training time it takes to move through, particularly the more the rudimentary compliance pieces, if you have done the training, really could speed things up using blockchain so as a technology or, or outside of calling it blockchain or LRS, maybe it's just using learner records that are, are globally shared. There's a long way to go, but mm. it's a little bit like when they first introduced GSM mobile phones because the background mm. was in telco. One of the great things was, oh, you can take your phone anywhere around the world. 99% of the time, I need it to work in my backyard. I don't need it to work in Norway. 
And it's the same sort of thing around the records. It's great in concept, it's great in theory, but what is that actually going to do for me better as an individual? So at the moment, I might have a compendium of the things that I've achieved in various institutions. And I don't know about you, but we still get a lot of people that complete an online course and hit the print button at the end of it because they want to have that physical record because they don't trust the entity wherever they've completed it. If you've completed compliance within an institution and then you're going to go to another institution you know that when you leave that institution, you may not get access to that anymore. That institution owns mm. that record of compliance True. for that place. So you want your own physical copy in case everything goes down. But mm. certainly you mentioned something about speed to competence. If you had to track anything, honestly, they just speed to capability. How long does it take for me to get that resource to be capable? And in the health space, it's really interesting because they go speed to capability, and then obviously cost of that resource. So we don't want to spend money on training because they might leave, but then what if we don't spend any money and yeah. they stay, right? There's another adage that actually also happens in, in health and care, and they go, okay, but if I'm paying this person this particular rate and then I educate them, then I have to pay them more, then I can't afford that, and then so I need to go back to another resource that's cheaper again. The first premise of healthcare is absolutely do no harm, right? So you've got oh. this unbelievable fine line to say, you need to show a regime of training, You absolutely need to show a regime of capability and competence in doing no harm. But then also, you don't want to overtrain because your resource is going to cost you more Mm. per hour. They'll almost take anybody in many jobs because it's effectively a seller's market, if you will, Mm. in the sense of where they actually go. So if you're in a remote and rural community, they actually the turnover of staff is incredibly low. It's less than a couple of percent because you've got a captive audience. If you're in a metro, some of your turnover is 30, 40, 50, 60, 70% per annum because they have a high churn of people actually moving through the industry. So again, our job, we believe, is to enable every healthcare worker to have access to learning to do their job through the institution and as well as directly. So if you want to go for a job in a particular health field, you should be able to access the learning that you need to basically do that. They're not looking for more degrees. They're looking for competence and capability and evidence of that. In the care sector, not necessarily Mm. hospitals, they're almost more likely to hire you because of your mindset and your temperament than they are because of your qualification. If you've got the qualification and a bad temperament, you're not going to get it very far in the industry at all. A great example is things like occupational violence. You see it a lot happening now with sort of people coming into emergency with security guards and all sorts of cases like that. In many other industries, perhaps more militant industries, they would be shut down. Right? If someone was coming to your door basically swinging at you, their management or unions or whatever would basically say, this is an unsafe workplace, we'd shut it down. In the health and care industry, it's often seen as the norm, and it's very common that you have basically aggressive, pissed-off people or their families presenting themselves in that situation. How do you train to that level of this duty of care as well as temperament of the worker in that place is to care first and then personal safety second. That's really important training, and I think people recognise it too. We've seen a trend uh, around content in that space, interestingly, Mark, from health, occupational violence, very serious set of outcomes there, but also in retail, aggressive customers within sort of, I guess, finance, retail sectors as well. There's a really growing, I guess, interest. So we we see sort of content trends, I guess, every year. There's always different trends, but um, definitely aggressive customers and occupational violence is is a big one, and and people are highly motivated to do that training. Where you're going to innovate within health and connect people to learning, what's the greatest challenge to sort of get that conversation over the line? There's probably not any one thing. It's probably more the cadence of the individual small things that basically happen. 
the good news, I guess, from a learning perspective is that the infrastructure probably wasn't there to begin with, right? Mm. The infrastructure layer now is with bring your own device, or not even your own device, bring your own browser, mm. right? So the, mm. the access, the, the screen, if you will, has changed that there are screens actually there. Um, there are industrial relations issues around using your own private device to do basically corporate learning. Pretty much everything you do in the sector needs to be clinically validated. Often we find that we're actually spending more time trying to validate things clinically as opposed to, let's just give it a try and see how it works. But because of the do no harm. Do no harm. Right? So mm. you, you want to do things. So occupational violence is a great example because I know you've had some background in the military and simulations. And, and the VR now that you can do in that environment is mm. so real mm. that when we read about what's going on in the military, that they actually have the same sort of around violence, that it's actually so real to the combatants in the simulation that they actually have the same symptoms as if they were actually in a live situation. So from an occupational violence perspective, what we're seeing is you actually, from a courseware, it can't be so real that they're actually mm. living it because yeah. they're actually now subjecting them to occupational violence to train them on it. You need to provide support during that training. We've seen that in um, their considerations we've taken into account for virtual reality. Exactly what you're saying, Mark. Yeah. That's right. You've it's got to so think real. about... Absolutely. And everybody experiences it very differently, yep. those types of situations. So the courseware that we've had to develop so far around occupational violence has had to actually take a step back and use things like cartoons, third-party observation, look at how this is happening, look at how it's unfolding, as opposed to actually immersing them in an occupational violence situation. Mm. So I know you've done lots of VR work as well. For the work we're doing, say, around occupational violence, there's great stuff that's been done with the ambulance service and all that sort of stuff. And it's actually too real that they've actually had to take a step back and say, no, no, we're actually now subjecting our staff to a scenario of occupational violence to show them what to avoid. That's actually causing all sorts of other issues. So how do we actually train in that environment? And your original question is, what's the one sort of thing? Mm. It's, it's, it's probably the commitment to do baby steps, sort of sort of fail fast and so sort of do micro learning chunks in an environment. So usually the process in health is takes longer to follow the process than it does to actually get the outcome, if that makes sense. They're so worried about documenting how it gets done that it's actually more impossible to do it that way than to just actually get it done. So what we find is we have this constant battle to basically show people what's possible. And that would be the thing that we find is you can't just come into the health market and say, we're going to do this and shake it up. Things get clinically validated over periods of time. Our focus is effectively to make sure that the health and care workers themselves are absolutely supported wherever they actually may be. We don't want anything to happen to a care workforce that's basically going to dull their relationship with the patient and, in fact, Everything we do should actually enhance their ability to be with the patient. Less admin, more customer-facing time, and more support resources. If you're going to do training, it's either all day or during a clinical handover, a cup of tea. Mm. So our biggest challenge right now is to make sure that the learning that people are currently doing in 70-page mm. slide decks mm. is accessible in micro-learning chunks in over one, two, or three minutes in a formal way. If I need to know how to do a particular yeah. procedure, give me that now. Mm. And if I've asked you five times to watch the video about that procedure, then auto-enroll me mm. in the full course when I have some time to do that on the train on the way home, right? Mm. But right now, I just need to know how to perform that little process. 
And once I've got that and I've done it, I've now watched the video two or three times. So we should, as learning professionals, be able to track that and say, right, well, you've accessed this three or four times. One of the best places that's doing this I see at the moment is LinkedIn with their integration of Linda. Mm. So if you actually go and start to play on LinkedIn and you do some searches and you do whatever, go have a look at what happens down the right-hand side. It, it actually says, oh, you seem to be doing lots of, or interacting with mm. lots of people in finance uh, who are this type. Do you want to be like that person? Here's some courseware topics that are three to five minutes long that you can actually get. Whereas someone like a Seek Learning, when you go into Seek and you look for a job, the courses Seek Learning are down the right-hand side. That's great. They're big courses. LinkedIn, through its acquisition of Linda, has taken that mm. to the next step because it knows your profile and knows your history and knows what you're doing and knows what you're posting and knows what you're interested in. And it's got 250,000 micro learning courses that you can have access to based on very individual granular topics. Mm. So that's what we want to see in health. Yeah, creating that influence is um, a challenge, I guess, within any industry and, you know, whether it's large enterprise, higher education, health too, I, I can see that, Mark. That's, um, yeah, it makes so much sense. I guess it's just, and identifying those small wins, I can see, is big in, and making things as personal as possible. Yeah. That machine learning stuff with LinkedIn on Linda and um, we've seen a lot more plugins for things just like WordPress that can you can plug in machine learning, you know. Yeah. It still takes some smarts to set it up the right way but um it's such a growing area as the spotify of um microsoft um just joined forces with facebook i think on investing in in that space exactly that space it's that sort of lifelong even learning partner that, yep. that's excited me around machine learning and is that our children potentially have a um a partner that's their mentor throughout life yep so they stick with that guide who grows with them over time and introduce finds their learning styles, finds their points of interest, understands them better than probably anybody, yep. um, perhaps their parents from a from an education and learning point of view and development and their aspirations, um, and then it introduces them throughout their life to the right, right ways to go. Yep. It is the future, though, because yep. the augmented reality or, or, or the machine learning, sorry, um, point of view is um, just so powerful. We're seeing, I think it definitely it's happening now. We're seeing it now through the simple things like Spotify. Yep. I guess we've got to wrap this up. I'd love to ask you, mate, do you have a learning hook you can share? Any learning hook that's something that's happened in your life when you've been learning or something amazing someone designed for you? They just, just change. It could be something really simple. The simplest learning hook I've actually experienced, it comes back to engagement. If you concentrate on the engagement of the individual learner, you will absolutely not go wrong. And But often mm. that flies in the face of what the course designer actually wants to do. So if a course designer says, we want to educate everyone on this, and that, but if you concentrate on the engagement of the learner, and, the, and one of the simplest learning hooks I remember, I think it was one of our design teams came up with, was, you know, from a lecture perspective, in order to get you to listen, I'm going to tell you five things. One of them is going to be a lie. Three of them are going to be right. You need to tell me which one's wrong. That level of engagement we find in our assessments work really, really well. That harks back to probably caveman days as far as, you know, telling stories. But from an online perspective, it actually works just as well, if not better, because it means people actually have to be focused. 
Thanks for sharing, Mark. I love that example, by the way. I used to have that on my website, so, uh, <laughs> so I agree. And um, just thanks for sharing all, all the ideas and the cross-pollination of ideas, particularly, I think, for anyone listening that's that's in health, you've no doubt taken a lot away from this. For anyone that's outside of health, I think these sort of the, the challenges that, that Mark's um, facing and, and, and finding solutions for for health really cross over for lots of industry. That speed to competence and particularly certain types of training that, you know, we're, we're redoing and reinventing the wheel in every organisation. That's what speaks to CFOs yep. in particular and, and CEOs where we can save a lot of time and money when we can do it without without at all getting close to harm, I Correct. guess, particularly for the health space. Other things I took away was bring your own browser. Love that phrase. Yep. So rather than the B- BYOD, um, bring your own browser is cool. And the importance of doing no harm, uh, clinical validation is a real challenge in-house. 10% of GDP, what a massive area to get right. It's a big number. It's a big number. However you look at it. And, you know, in the power of learning records is massive and, and hasn't been embraced, I think, across any industry well. But yep. the technology's there. So I guess it's just why isn't the appetite? Um, but it's, it's probably how we introduce it. So thanks again, Mark. That's it for this episode. If you want to take the discussion further, you can contact us at www.learninghook.com.au or subscribe to the podcast via Podbeans or iTunes. The link should be displayed on our site. Until next time, uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks, thanks, thanks Brendan.